Our text of Scripture this morning is a very practical implication from what Paul has been arguing early, earlier in the uh, book of Colossians. He's made an important theological point, but unless our beliefs usher into our lives, they miss the point. So now he's talking practically about how we ought to live in the world. I invite you to listen for God's word as it comes to us from the book of Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or of observing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions, puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They're simply human commands and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety and humility and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I read that text to my wife recently, she responded, I'm glad you're preaching and not me. An unusual text, perhaps. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, it occurs to me we have our own cultural rules that seemingly check our self-indulgence, but may need to be questioned. It's not really that hard when you begin to think about these first century people and the kinds of context in which they were trying to live out their faith may not be that different from ours. Recently, for example, I've had to rethink my diet. Diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, I was sent to a nutritionist for a consultation and there I was told that for the rest of my life, I would have to be gluten-free. Good thing I live in Southern California where it's pretty trendy to be gluten-free, I thought. Geez, at Whole Foods, there's an entire aisle dedicated to gluten-free products. If I were back in my home state of Minnesota, I'd be kind of out of luck. Ask for a gluten-free menu at a restaurant there and you might just be shown the door. So for a year and a half, I've been essentially gluten-free to the best of my knowledge, except for an occasional pizza and a beer once or twice. And I've got to say, I really don't miss the bread that much. I actually prefer rice crackers to wheat crackers. I'm learning to actually reach for the gluten-free option down here at the communion service this morning. And apparently my body may be responding to gluten 
with inflammation in my digestive system that may be causing my immune system to attack my joints and my muscles. Now I say may because this is a very inexact science apparently. The rheumatologist that I see told me that the science behind many of these dietary programs is pretty weak but it can't hurt. So I couldn't help but feeling sorry for my grandparents who knew nothing about any of this. They, in, they ate entirely wrong their entire lives and only lived to 102. <laughs> One recent book on dietary issues begins this way, quote, Suppose that in the next few pages I told you that everything you thought you knew about your diet, your health, and your weight is wrong. For decades, I believed those lies as well. I was eating a healthy diet. After all, I'm a heart surgeon. I rarely ate fast food. I consumed low-fat dairy and whole grains. Okay, I admit to having a penchant for Diet Coke, but that was much better than drinking the original sugar-filled brew, right? Nor was I a slouch in the fitness department. I ran 30 miles a week and worked out at the gym daily. And despite the fact that I was hauling around excess weight, I had high blood pressure, migraine headaches, arthritis, high cholesterol, and insulin resistance. I continued to believe that I was doing everything right. Spoiler, he writes, I'm now 70 pounds lighter and no longer have any of those health issues. But a nagging voice inside my head kept asking the same question. If I'm doing everything right, why is this happening to me? The prescription to the problem comes just a paragraph later. I have the solution to what ails you, but please prepare to have all your assumptions about what you thought you knew about living a healthy life challenged. This information will dispel myths that are embedded in our culture and introduce concepts that may initially blow your mind. End quote. Salvation is at hand. It just promises more than it can deliver. Now the truth be told, I am not nearly as cynical as you may think I am about these new health crazes, or as I may sound in the pulpit this morning. In fact, each decade of my life since my 50s, I've hired a trainer to show me how to engage in age-appropriate exercise. And I do believe garbage in, garbage out when it comes to nutrition. My new focus in life is flexibility and better nutrition. And I am a motivated person in the gym, but I don't think it'll save me. I get to the gym at least a couple of times a week, and I love it. I would be there every day. I know some of you detest it, but I love it. Every time I get there, I see the same people. They must live there. <laughs> Different ages, many of them tattooed up, clearly proud of their physiques and working hard to develop their muscles. Many know 
what they are doing, and I can tell by how they use the equipment. Others are simply imitating what they see others doing. They use the machinery improperly. They work certain muscle groups, but not the opposite muscle groups. They're losing their flexibility. And I've come to understand trainers actually know what they're doing. Just like you know about whatever you're good at, they know about what they're good at. So do nutritionists. I had a friend who went through cancer treatment some years ago and he emerged on the other side, not only in remission, but cured. And he became fascinated with Dr. Bernie Siegel, who wrote the book Love, Medicine, and Miracles, maybe 35 years ago. So he went to hear Dr. Siegel speak at a conference. And at the conference, Dr. Bernie Siegel said to this group of people in a conference room, he said, I've done the research. We all die. And then he went on to say, I think there's going to be a special support group in heaven for all those people who thought eating whole grains would save them. Now, there's nothing wrong with living a healthy life. But if your motivation is that by doing so, somehow you can save yourself, you're wrong. You and I need a Savior. That's Paul's point. All of these efforts to be super spiritual, to limit our self-indulgence, to put boundaries on our appetites, to look amazing in gym shorts, they may actually deceive us into thinking that we can save ourselves by our own efforts. Don't believe the hype. Don't believe that self-mastery is the ultimate goal. Self-mastery won't save you. That idea has been around since the first century at least, and it's insidious and it's seductive. This afternoon we'll watch the Super Bowl and it'll be on full display. If you work hard enough in the gym you can look like these football heroes, you can become a hero yourself on the gridiron. But as we sadly learned a week ago on this Sunday in a recent helicopter accident that took the life of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others, even 41-year-old icons and cultural heroes can't save themselves. I couldn't help feel sorry last Sunday for those kids in the NBA, and most of them are kids in their early 20s. They were learning about Kobe Bryant's death on the bench as they were in the middle of a game and I couldn't believe the NBA just told those kids to go back to work. The problem with self-mastery is it leads to a kind of arrogance and self-importance. Some fitness junkies even look down on others in the gym who are carrying extra weight as if it's just a character fault. Paul is making a distinction here, and it makes a difference. 
Why you do what you do matters as much as what you do. And in the words of one commentator in the, this text of Scripture, these ascetic practices that Paul is attacking pandered to an innate human desire to be part of an exclusive set, a cut above, to be a super-Christian. If the goal and the motivation is to achieve self-mastery for the purpose of becoming part of an exclusive set, a cut above, then we're going down the wrong track. If it's for better health, then by all means pursue it, but not for the wrong reason. For the early church and for Christian people today, self-mastery has its place. But it's not an end in itself. Self-mastery is for the purpose of love. Don't let people look down their noses at you and condemn you for not having a perfect body or for aging or for not working hard enough in the gym or being disciplined enough to save yourself. You can't save yourself. Certainly not by spending less time at the dinner table and more time in the gym. The good news is you don't need to save yourself. God has saved you. So Paul writes, if with Christ you died, well, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Now, we belong in the world by God's design. It's not by accident that we're here, but by providence. We belong in the world, but not to the world. That means we can exercise some independence from the rules and the regulations of our cultures. It doesn't mean that we're not subject to the laws like gravity, but it does mean that we have the freedom to decide whether customs and ways of interacting that have been handed to us actually are useful or consistent with what we believe. We don't have to be slaves to the latest fads. We don't have to be a slave to our exercise spreadsheet. We don't have to become foodies or buy the Peloton, believing the hype that we just change our own lives and we can save them through some kind of self-mastery. We might want to live healthier. We might need to eat better. We might need more exercise so we can be around long enough to help our children and grandchildren grow up. Self-mastery is not an end, it's a means to a much larger end in order to love. Faith in Christ places us in the world not as those who, com who seek to complete self-reliance and self-mastery, but as those who exercise self-control in order to be of some usefulness to God. There are all sorts of subtle ways that we'll be encouraged to take life back into our own hands for God. 
It's deceptive and it's seductive because we'll think we're being good stewards that it'll make us more spiritual if we can just master it all. We want to first achieve something and then we'll receive the good things from God that we want. Because that's the way the world works. You achieve the grade, then you get admission into your top college. First you have to exceed or at least meet the sales goal before you get the promotion. You have to achieve first, then you receive. That can lead to a kind of self-justification and self-tyranny in the faith. You have to first receive the gift from God who paid the ultimate price for your salvation. And if you don't just receive it as a gift, it doesn't come any other way. Once you receive your salvation, then you're free to achieve in life. Plato tells the story of the Apology of Socrates. Socrates has to answer the charge on which he was convicted and ultimately put to death, that he had, quote, corrupted the young men of the city and did not believe in the gods believed in by the city, but had introduced other new divinities, end quote. Socrates was teaching philosophy through a series of questions and answers that came to be known as the Socratic method, a method of instruction that is often used today in law schools and elsewhere. So in his defense, on the charge of corrupting the young, Socrates replied with these words, Strange indeed would be my conduct, O men of Athens, if I, who, when I was ordered by the generals whom you chose to command me, remained where they placed me like any other man facing death. If now, when, as I conceive and imagine, God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission of searching into myself and other men, if I were to desert my post through fear of death or any other fear, that would indeed be strange. If you say to me, Socrates, this time we will not mind and you shall be let off, but upon one condition that you are not to inquire and speculate in this way anymore, and that if you're caught doing so again, you shall die. If this was the condition on which you would let me go, I should reply, men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice and teaching of philosophy exhorting anyone whom I meet and saying to him after my manner, you, my friend, a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, are you not ashamed of heaping up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation and caring so little about wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul, which you never regard or heed at all? Apparently it wasn't a convincing argument. Socrates failed to convince his hearers during his interrogation he was executed for corrupting the young by challenging the values of the day. 
perhaps we would do well to listen again to the criticisms of Socrates. It's easy to be misdirected and misguided as to what's really important in life. And we too must obey God rather than the cultural voices of our own time by adding to these additional requirements that only look like they actually inspire because what they actually do is enslave us. So let me conclude with this illustration. You know, 1938, at Harvard University, they began a longitudinal study of their students. Over 80 years, mostly men, because that's the students they had at the time, 268 sophomores at Harvard University in 1938 were followed through the next 80 years of their life. It's one of the most significant longitudinal studies of health that's ever been accomplished. Over the years, researchers have studied the participants' health trajectories and their broader lives, including their triumphs and failures in careers and marriage. And the findings have produced startling lessons, not only for the researchers. Quote, the surprising finding is that our relationships and how happy we are in our relationships has a powerful influence on our health. Said Robert Waldinger, director of the study, a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Quote, taking care of your body is important, but tending to your relationships is a form of self-care too that I think is the revelation. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. End quote. Close relationships, more than money or fame, or what, are what keep people happy throughout their lives, the study revealed. And those ties protect people from life's discontents. They help to delay mental and physical decline. They're better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. That finding proved true across the board among both the Harvard men and subsequently the inner city participants that they added in to the survey. So don't believe everything you hear about what leads to a vibrant and flourishing life. Use your judgment and spend at least as much time on your relationships as you do on your efforts at self-mastery for it leads to good things in life and good things for our communal life together. Thanks be to God. Amen.